Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Austin Police Association podcast. This is President Thomas Villarreal, uh, joined today by PAC Chair, podcast co-host. I, I think it's time we just give you that title, Christopher uh, Christopher Irwin. And with us today, we've got a pretty, pretty special guest, retired Assistant Chief Todd Smith. How are you today, buddy? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for being here. You know, when when we started thinking about ideas of of topics to cover, when I had this crazy idea to start this podcast a couple months back, leadership and and servant leadership and particularly your your name was one of the first kind of ideas and and names to to rise to the surface. And so, we are very very excited to have you here with us today to talk about uh, leadership in general. Talk about you know what brought you back to the police department. Uh, in your in your civilian retiree capacity now, just uh, you know all things leadership. I think I think any organization could always do a better job of finding leaders, of building leaders. You know, just just doing a, a good job, especially a, a large organization of of leading people. Excited to see where this conversation takes us, and like I said, just happy happy that you're here. You take a moment and just uh, kind of explain to people that might not know you who you are and. And uh, what what got us to to this place? Yeah, no, thanks again for having me. Um, I, we're going to be here hours if we get into all of my background because I love to talk about leadership and caring and wellness and why I left the department after 25 years, what I did after that, and then being back for the last year working in wellness. I'll start off by saying uh, lifelong Austinite. I can actually say I'm a fifth generation Austinite. I've got stories of great-great-granny coming over in a covered wagon from Rome, Georgia, starting our family here. Austin has always been my home. Uh, I went to Anderson High School for two years. I graduated from Westwood High School because my parents moved. I was raised in the restaurant business by my father, who managed several restaurants. He owned a restaurant downtown called Beans on 6th Street, and then he also owned a restaurant called Slang Jang's, which is now where Chinatown is at Greystone and Mopac. Always wanted to be of service. I, I loved customer service. I spent 10 years in the restaurant and retail arena um, and as a manager. I had had nine, 10 years experience of management in restaurants and retail by the time I got on with the police department. So I turned 29 in the academy in January of 1995. Many people don't know this, but I actually applied two other times in that 10 years of my management or leadership journey. And both times I withdrew my application in the middle of the background investigation because during that time I got a promotion within the private business I was working at. And if I knew for sure that I could become a police officer and had a start date for the academy, I would have turned down those promotions. But during that time, um, they said, no, we're still going to have to contact your employer. And I thought, I'm going to be quickly removed from the management training program or leadership training programs that I was being promoted into or if I were to continue on with the uh, with the process. So I removed myself from that process twice. But one of my mentors and favorite people in the world was my father-in-law, Ernie Hinkle, who just passed away um, in February. And he used to always set me up with a young officer that I'd get to ride with and every time I would go for a ride along, um, I just I just thought, wow, you get paid to do this? Like 10 hours would fly by. Yeah. And I eventually just left retail, went back to the restaurant, got my associate's degree, told the owner of the restaurant, which was Lone Star Cafe for some of you long time, long term Austinites, talked to the owner, Mike Carpenter. And I said, I really want to be a police officer. It's my life's dream. I've been, you know, applying and, and withdrawing my application, but this time I'm going to get in it and I'm going to stay. And he said, Todd, if you want to work for us for two weeks or 20 years, we've got a spot for you. And it just made my life so much easier to be able to apply to the department as a manager of a restaurant versus a bartender or a waiter. Sure. You know, back then in 94, you know, you, you waited around the block with 2,000 other applicants, and many of them were in police uniforms to be able to test the civil service test at the time. And so I, I was one of those waiting with thousands of people, um, a line as long as you can see, and finally got the opportunity to take the test. I thought I did well, but when you get your ranking and you realize, oh, I'm like 250 out of 2,000 people, and they have 40 available spots, 
I just thought there's no way that I'm going to get in. Yeah. And eventually I did get in, started in January of 95, rose through the ranks somewhat quickly just because I was never intimidated to be a manager or a leader because of the experience I had. So I served just about in every area. I was in Adams sector and then Edwards sector. And then I was on motors. And then as a detective, I was a... Um, a spe- just a general detective up in Northeast Austin in Edwards sector and then ended up specializing in UUMV. So just pretty much all the UUMVs in Edwards sector would come to me. Then I promoted a sergeant, uh, was a DR sergeant, was a night shift patrol sergeant, was part of CIT team in the early years uh, when we merged with Travis County and got offices at Ash. I then had the opportunity to go to the SWAT team During all of this time, I was also part of a critical incident stress management team. When the towers fell and were bombed in 2001, 9-11, I responded to to that tragic event and was with a stress management team, and we debriefed dozens and dozens of first responders that were impacted by that terrorist attack. That kind of opened my eyes to peer support and wellness in general and officers experiencing burnout, how important resiliency is. And when I came back, Chief Nee at the time appointed to be to be on a panel to help try to bring peer support to the Austin Police Department. So I was kind of in the, one of the founding folks when it comes to peer support with the uh, police department here. So I continued on as a sergeant on the SWAT team, eventually promoted to lieutenant. My first assignment was a consolidation of the parks unit, what was formerly known as PSM, Public Safety Emergency Management. Had the airport, had parks, had lakes, ended up with mounted patrol, executive protection, special events. I remember at one time, I, I think I had definitely more in my area of responsibility than any other lieutenant. And um, I really enjoyed that job. Five years into that, I was, I was asked to go to internal affairs. I spent two years in internal affairs. That turned into another section of my storybook career, as I like to call it, because I feel like I've just truly led an amazing police career. But I was asked to be part of a grant-funded delegation from the State Department to travel to Morocco and be a subject matter expert on professional standards and internal affairs. So I was able to meet with the federal law enforcement executives of of the country of Morocco and talk about internal affairs, talk about professional standards, you know, what we do with allegations and misconduct with officers here. And so I spent two weeks in Morocco. The following year, they came to Austin and I got to host that delegation here in Austin. We, We spent a week in internal affairs and in risk management, learning the ups and downs. And then I was able to go back and follow up with them Uh, the following year. So what a remarkable time that I had um, as a, you know, an officer here, never in my wildest dreams when I was patrolling Runberg as a young cop that I think that I would see the African sunset on the African coast in Morocco. That's pretty wild. All because I was a police officer and all because I was just always curious, always wanting to try new challenges, always wanting to go to new units. It seemed like I always wanted to move every couple of years just to try out some new adventure. As soon as it started to feel like work, I was looking for the next opportunity. Sure. And maybe that's part of my entrepreneurial spirit from the restaurants and retail days. I think of, you know, what can I do to affect change? What can, what problems can I solve? Um, Eventually promoted to commander. I was over uh, South Sub for just a short bit. And then Chief Acevedo moved me up north, realizing that I lived up north. I was over Adams Sector and Edwards Sector. I was also a backup commander for um, SWAT callouts for the special operations. And so I always had my hand, I guess, my toe in the the spec ops community because of that. I was a hostage negotiator for eight years also um, before, like while I was a detective and sergeant. Uh, So anyway, just a lot of things near and dear to my heart involved around health and fitness, um, special operations, peer support. You know, I was ready to I announced my retirement and was on my way out the door, said, I've got six months left. And then I spoke with uh, with Chief Manley, and I looked at it as an, inter- an exit interview. He was, he was wanting to know my feedback on the selection for the next two assistant chiefs. I was not interested in that position. I never aspired to be an assistant chief. Um, I, I looked at it as an exit interview and just said, well, here goes nothing. And I told him about the problems within the department. I told him about the problems with some of the, uh, you know, leaders that were in position at that time. I suggested, basically told him that leaders that don't listen find themselves in rooms that don't speak. I said people are not 
quitting their jobs. And he interrupted me and said, you're right, they're quitting their bosses. And I said, you've surrounded yourself with taskmasters. You don't have anybody up here. Uh, speaking of the fifth floor and leadership in general, I just said, nobody up here has the servant heart. I think that needs to be changed. And I said, if you get the right servant hearts up here, they can learn any task. But for you to surround yourself with taskmasters or people that are labeled the, the hammer or the sledgehammer or whatever, it's, you know, you're losing followers fast. He asked me if I'd be willing to stay if I was selected to be an assistant chief. I said I'd have to think about it, but it's hard for me to, to throw shade and say bad things about the department and then not be willing to help fix it. And that was probably what, in like 2017, 2018? It was 2018, yeah. So I remember... At some point, the rumor mill starts just like fluttering uh, about this place. And and there was a buzz, I, and I don't know where it started, but there was definitely a buzz that Todd Smith's going to be one of the next assistant chiefs. And you and I had talked, it's probably because you were the the North commander. Yes. And, you know, I'm in the, in the role at the time as either the secretary or, or the vice president of the APA, dealing with all the issues that come up. And, and you know, naturally, I, I tell people all the time, like, there's some commanders that, that you can work with, right? I could send Christopher as as the pack chair to lots of people across this place and just be like, hey, you speak for the APA, go kind of deal with an issue, talk as adults, figure stuff out. And then there's other, unfortunately, there's there's some folks at this place that you just can't have those conversations with and you have to go to a chief, to a, to an assistant chief to, to handle. I remember having an easy, it was always easy to deal with you when you were a commander. And at, I believe at one point we had... A conversation I, I like to to ask people especially on on you know kind of the downhill slope of their career like hey what's your plan what are you going to do right and part of it is because I care and I care about people but part of it is uh, I almost treat even being here for almost 18 years I almost look at most conversations like when I was on FTO like I can I can pick something up either something I can do or something not to do from from probably everybody at this place. And so I always like to, to talk to people. And I remember having a conversation and you're like, yep, I'm, I'm going to leave and on to the next journey. And then this kind of buzz starts around the police department of, you know, hey, Todd's going to be one of the next assistant chiefs. I'm like, you guys are crazy. Todd just told me he's retiring. And then lo and behold, you get announced as one of the, you know, new assistant chiefs. I think it was shocking to some folks because you had kind of very openly told folks that you were leaving. Right. But I think generally people were happy. I think, especially looking back, it was uh, Acevedo had left some amount of time before then. Mm -hmm. And Chief Manley was trying to find his way as a chief, trying to build his executive team. I'm not going to sit here and bash sure. for, former leaders, but I think there was lots of people that were were really happy to see that, that you got selected and that you were going to stick around and, and go to the fifth floor. And... And I remember having conversations with you when you were an assistant chief. And it was, you know, again, like always easy conversations and always, even when we didn't agree on stuff, even when we, when we couldn't agree on stuff because mm -hmm. of just the, the, the natural kind of difference of opinions between labor and management. And it's, it's healthy disagreement and it's cordial and respectful disagreement, but it's always easy, easy to have those conversations with you. Thanks. I appreciate that. You know, it's one of the, the highlights of my life really to have the privilege and honor to be selected as an assistant chief. I couldn't wait to get started. And that was coming off of being a commander for almost three years. And I've never been so excited as when I was a commander. Could not wait to, to run my own, you know, figuratively my own police department at the North substation mm -hmm. and try to change things as much as possible. And I remember going in there just looking for things that we could do to change things. And I remember seeing some plaques that were on the wall and you would look on it and said, employee of the quarter in 2011. You know, it stopped at 2011 for Edwards Sector. And then over across the hall was something for Ida Sector and it's employee of the quarter stopped in 2012. And I remember talking to uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Lee Davis at the time, who was the DR Sergeant. And I said, we need to take these down and start over. And he says, well, there's still people in the building that are on this plaque. And I said, no, we've, we're amplifying that we stopped caring in 2011. We need to, if, if it's that important to them, then they can keep this plaque with all of these names on it. But we can't just advertise here that we stopped caring in 2011. 
And then there was these TVs throughout both the sub, the South Sub and the North Sub. And I noticed there was a USB port on it. And I thought, is there a way to have just great things like photos of officers and the great things that they're doing and be able to just scroll that on an endless loop? And so I found the right people to, to gather the photos and make that happen. And that became known as Todd TV, which I just loved um, the fact that I was able to contribute in small little ways to at least put a smile on somebody's face. Yeah. I used to love walking down the halls and visiting with people. You know, I had a wise commander mentor of mine tell me, if you really want to be a rock star as as a commander, it's really not going to take much. I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, show up for a few hours on a Saturday. Word will get out that you work every Saturday. Show up to Thanksgiving dinner after you're families tucked in bed on a night shift. Word will get out that you work every holiday. Go out for a ride out on a Friday night. Word will get out that you ride out every Friday and Saturday night. It quickly um, came true. And while I was doing that, the academy called and said, hey, we we keep hearing great things about what you're doing up at the North Substation. And we have a, a leadership class that was being taught. And the person who left Um, They retired. We'd love for you to teach a class because we keep hearing great things about what you're doing up at the North substation. I said, well, send it over to me. I'll take a look. I'm assuming there's PowerPoint slides. And they said, yes. So they sent it to me. And I remember opening it up in the title page said proactive police supervision. And I just kind of rolled my eyes and I said, man, that just sounds like intense micromanagement. And I said, do I have to keep this title in there? They said, no, you can do what you want with it. So I looked at the next slide and it showed, you know, a plowed field, uh, a crop that had been just plowed, freshly plowed. And it said people are just like dirt. And the next slide showed these crops starting to grow, and it it started talking about how you need to nurture and support and all of these things, which made sense. But I just thought, that's not me. I can't lead with people are like dirt. And so through all of my research and my leadership journey, I was really trying to figure out what is my style of leadership in so after reading a bunch of book, books, uh, looking at a bunch of videos, I came in, in contact with Richard Greenleaf's essay called Servant Leadership. And it's just an essay. It's not a book. It's not a reference manual. But everything that I read about there reminded me back to the days that I was announced as the youngest manager um, ever promoted by Lone Star Cafe at the age of 21, and how I would have to sit down and organize and and lead people that were career restaurant folks, waiters, bartenders, um, even other managers at some point, because I became a manager of managers. Um, But I remember that's me. Like, I put other people first, and it's all about caring. It starts with caring. It ends with caring. And if it And then I also started gravitating towards Simon Sinek, who says leadership is not a rank. Leadership is a choice. We have leaders at at the highest levels of all organizations, including business, including the military, that are absolutely not leaders. They are authority figures. We do what they tell us to do because they have authority over us, but we would never follow them. At the same understanding, we have people at the lowest levels of organizations with no authority, no rank but they're absolutely leaders because they choose to take care of the people to the left of them and the right of them. And it just really spoke to me. To me, there is no other form of successful leadership than servant leadership. And I wish I could just call it Leadership 101, but for now it stands as servant leadership. And so coming back, I've been honored to be asked to teach servant leadership again. And so I just started back up um, a few months ago with sergeant schools, corporal schools, and then we just bet, opened it back up on a CADIS. And so last month, uh, there were four classes. And then this coming month in September, there's four classes being offered. I remember hearing servant leadership for the first time as a phrase, mm-hmm. right? When, when you started talking about it, you visibly made changes on the fifth floor. It was at least portrayed that this was a Todd Smith idea to have photos of officers in the fifth floor conference room yep. to remind the, the managers of this police department kind of who, who they should be working for. And people started talking about servant leadership, right? And servant leadership and servant leadership. And I think the tough thing, it, it, it almost, for me, it almost reminds me of of community policing, right? Mm-hmm. Like people like to use community policing because it's a buzzword and we know that we should be for community policing. And I've had lots of conversations, especially with elected officials, where I'm like, you can't just say you're going to do community policing when you don't have anyone to do community policing. Sure. When 
when you give me the opportunity to drive around at 15, 20 miles an hour through neighborhoods, just patrolling with my windows down, stopping to talk to someone if I just want to talk to them, stopping to talk at a church to a pastor because they're out there tending to the yard or, you know, whatever. That is community policing. You can't just say, hey, Thomas is doing community policing as he's running from call to call to call to call to call because, you know, he's the third officer on a, on a shift that should have 10 people. And so I started hearing servant leadership kind of as a buzzword. Unfortunately, I think it gets the community policing kind of treatment at times when people just want to say it and be like, okay, that's enough. You know, it's a it's a lifestyle. It's it's a way of of really looking at every aspect, in my opinion, kind of every aspect of of this part of your life and how do I go about my business and how do I treat my people and how do I how do I take people my, under my wing to, 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 to get them to where they need to be and all these different things? Do you, and so I say all that to say, to ask you a question. Do you, do you think that anybody can be taught servant leadership? Like I'm, I'm in, in the 17 plus years that I've been here, like I've seen fantastic formal leaders. I've seen fantastic informal leaders. I've seen fantastic leaders at the shift level, right? Kind of at, at every rank. And then I've seen some really toxic people mm-hmm. at, at a bunch of different ranks as somebody who not only kind of talks the talk, but walks the walk as it pertains to servant leadership. Like, do you think that, that you could take most people and, and kind of teach them this skill, if you will? Yeah, I think that goes back to the uh, question of are leaders born or are they made? At the beginning of my class, I go around the room and ask everybody kind of, you know, their name and their assignment, how long they've been in, in place. And then I also ask them, give me a trait of a good leader. Tell me a good, good quality of a leader. By the time that they finish, I usually have 20 or 30 things written up on the board of all the leadership traits that they consider to be that of a good leader. Then I ask them, because trustworthy, loyal, kind, competent, a good listener, you look at all of them and you realize, okay, are these skills or are these character traits? Sure. And the vast majority of them are character traits. So we go to cert- we go get up these certifications and go to training to do our job the best that we can from a management perspective. But when was the last time we went to character school yeah. or got character training? So I think it is an eye opener to realize, oh, well, trust is kind of the cornerstone of leadership. Absolutely, and you can't yeah. have trust without a relationship. So let's let's look under the hood. What does it take to have a good relationship? And you start backing that out and you realize, well, you can't become like you're not going to fall in love with somebody before seven days. But after seven years, if you haven't asked somebody to marry you and you've been living with them and raising kids, people will probably wonder, like, what's taking so long? Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes with leadership. I just can't come in here and meet Christopher for the first time and say, trust me, I've got you. That's not going to work. And so it's only going to be through consistent behavior that happens in very small doses in the hallway and through certain events. And over time, at some point, a relationship will happen. And so to, to answer your question, I think that servant leadership can absolutely be learned. But you have to realize that it's not just certifications. You can go to sergeant school and they give you your stripes and say, boom, you're a leader. But you you really haven't figured out how to have a difficult conversation yet. You haven't been tested with difficult decisions. Sure. You know, we often think about that first time, like what's it look like when I go in and introduce myself as a new supervisor to show up? That first impression is not optional. So it's important to be squared away, to look the part, to be friendly to extend that hand and to say thank you and to open doors for people. You start to connect with people over a period of time, and then they start to trust you. You talk about community policing and unable to to be that servant as a police officer, and I think you can easily run into the same managing by triage nowadays with so much to do and so little time yeah. that you don't give the people the time that they need. I mean, I remember endless football, you know, throw and catch 
in the neighborhoods that I was responsible for as an officer. You know, I used to pride myself on there's no cop that can throw a football further than me. So I would get out there and everybody would say, Smitty's here. And they just nicknamed me Smitty because they saw Smith on my name tag. I would get out there and just throw the football until I couldn't throw it anymore. And it was it was those types of connections that led to when there was a drive-by shooting, somebody would come up because they knew me and they would see me in the community doing those things. And they would say, meet me around the corner. I don't want any of the neighbors to see. And that's how I would get intel on who actually committed that shooting. And so if you're just racing to call the call the call, like the public is not going to know who you are. If you're a commander, if you spend all your time in meetings on Zoom calls, nobody's going to know your name. Like you and I are never going to have as good a relationship if we're on a Zoom call and you're looking at TS and I'm looking at, you know, TV. Like it's never going to happen. We have to be with each other and to spend time with each other in order for that to happen. So I've got a degree uh, from the UT School of Communications and uh, hook him, Christopher. Yeah, gig him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For everyone that can't see Christopher, he's wearing an Aggie maroon shirt today. Yes, sir. Always a a good point of contention in this office. And I, too, was a hostage negotiator, not quite for as long as you, just a couple years, and it was an incredible opportunity for me to grow as a police officer and for me to grow and, and kind of build my skills, um, you know, really active communication, active listening skills, right? Like just, it made me a better cop to go through those schools, to learn those, those skills. Like I I tell people all the time, I feel like I'm a decent communicator. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also recognize COVID of all the terrible things that COVID did to people and, you know, all the tragedy that came out of COVID people's willingness to be open to just jumping on a computer and taking a meeting where maybe I'm paying attention to you, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm actually listening to what you're saying, right? Maybe I'm, maybe something will come of this meeting, maybe it won't. You know, for me, it's just another thing that COVID kind of screwed up in our world um, because there's so much more you can get from just having a conversation. I'm having a lunch today with a guy that's, I don't know where he falls in terms of supporting the police, not supporting the police. He sits on the public safety commission. We had about a two minute conversation and he's like, Hey, I'd like to meet or have a phone call. I'm like, Hey, let's meet for lunch. Mm -hmm. You can, you can really break through a lot of nonsense by just sitting down with somebody face to face. Breaking bread, I think is, is a huge important thing. I just, I think it's, there's not enough people that do it. There's not enough people, especially like at a police department like ours that, that people are yearning, just, just longing for that connection Uh, I don't know that it happens quite enough. Yeah, I love the analogy of I think the world would be a better place if we all spent more time around campfires. Yeah. The way that we're interacting right now, I wouldn't even think to grab my phone and take a look at it because I appreciate your time and I value your time. Whereas if we're on a Zoom call, I wouldn't hesitate to never put my phone down. It's just one of those habits that we get into, and, you know, if it vibrates, we're going to be so curious, we're going to look at it. And if we're not on camera or, I mean, I've seen plenty of people on camera, and you can tell that they're on their phone. Yeah. It just, you you totally lose the depth of relationship building. You lose the inspiration that you can get from others when you're in person. There are some jobs and some people that can excel with remote working. I'm not one of those. Yeah. I really need people and I need to be around people. And that's where to me, the magic happens, the sparks, the the brainstorming. That's one of the reasons I came back because it's like, if you're used to problem solving, achieving, accomplishing, helping others, and all of a sudden you punch out and you're retired after a while, you start to realize, well, there's nothing to accomplish. There's nothing to achieve. There's nobody to help, especially when you're used to, to feeling helpful in the public service arena. Yeah. Um, I tried volunteering at different organizations and there's just no connection. Yeah. I started a business and, and wanted to be a general contractor and I didn't realize that my OCD was so wrapped around punctuality and honesty. I couldn't find any of it in a different business outside of police work. And it led me back into what can I do to volunteer? What can I do to get re-engaged. I felt like I left, you know, I had a COVID retirement. It was horrible. Like all the bars, restaurants, everything shut down. I couldn't even have a get together, turned in all of my equipment with no, you know, fanfare. Not that I needed a, a, you know, a parade or anything like that, but, you know, all the goodbyes were done on a, on a team's call, Yeah. you know, and I turned in all my stuff wearing a mask and gloves. 
you know, I've talked to so many retirees that are struggling right now because they just they just thought that as soon as they hit a certain uh, you know amount of money in the bank or as soon as they hit a certain amount of years with the department and they were going to have a paycheck for life, that everything was going to be great. As I like to refer, because of true stories, you know, now you know the honeymoon's starting to get, you know, starting to come to an end. Yeah. They're in right now. You know, some that just left last month is in that honeymoon phase, and they're in the second season of Yellowstone. Everything's going great, and then all of a sudden, the seasons come to an end. There's nothing else to do, and I've literally talked to retirees that have worn out their remote controls to where they can't see the buttons anymore, or that bottle of of bourbon that they used to reserve for special occasions is what they used to get to bed every night. Yeah. So anyway, um, that something else that I started to work on with coming back and being part of the wellness is peer support and peer support for retirees. Also, I have a a, a buddy, and I won't name him out of, out of respect for his privacy. Retired, and I don't know, it was three, four, five, six months down the road, and mm-hmm. I met him for breakfast just to kind of check in with him and see how life was. And he's like, man, I've always prided myself on, you know, I'm a husband, uh, I'm, I'm a father, lengthy period of time, they were small business owners. He's like, and I, I told myself, I'm not just a cop, I'm not just a cop, right? I've got all these other things going on. And I think, I think that's a struggle that people, especially that have been on the job for, for a stride, recognize and see, especially in some of their coworkers, hey, when you let this job consume you, like maybe it's not the most healthy thing. This friend of mine was like, and then I retired and I cleaned out all my uniforms. And I, he's like, and I physically walked into my closet and there was a void in my closet. And it just like cemented, like you can, you can think that this isn't, you know, that, that the job doesn't define you. But when it touches every aspect of your life, hey, I'm on call, so we have to take two cars to dinner. You know, hey, I've got I've to burn a couple hours of vacation because this is going on with the kids or that's going on with the kids. Like, uh, just everything. For him, he was basically saying, like, it really cemented that, like, you can think this thing doesn't, doesn't kind of drive who you are, but it most certainly can and, and does for most folks. And so, yeah, I, I, I think I put myself in that same situation where I'm like, I'd, I'd like to think it's not defining to me right like I, I try very very much to have friends outside the police department to kind of keep me grounded to try to you know try to keep me normal and and normalized but I also recognize like I got hired here when I was 21 right you know I, I just yep. turned 39 a couple of weeks ago this and it's is like, your life this is the only thing that I've done I graduated from UT a semester early to start a police academy and it's like I yeah I had other jobs during college but like this is the only job I've ever had post-graduating college and uh and it's you're exactly right like i i do think there's probably not enough resources out there for our retirees um on on the mental health peer support kind of post-retirement side of things but yeah being being down the hall from uh jen smith and crew of of our amazing peer support group um they would come down the hall and say man we're getting so many requests for retirees that are hurting would you mind helping us and i said yeah i'd be happy to help we're able to get tim cresta back help work on creating a peer support group for retirees and so we put on two trainings um also being in wellness i've been able to host um three wellness retreats for officers last year and then there's four on the books for this year um two have already passed they're fishing trips they're golf trips and basically it's an opportunity for officers whether it's with their shift or or not to just unplug and recharge yeah during uh these wellness trips that i'm i'm happy to host there have been some Purple Hearts from Vietnam that have also joined um, because the the head coordinator who goes around and, and solicits people to donate their Airbnbs and guides for fishing boats and restaurants to donate a meal. He also invites the military veterans. And so I was talking to a bunch of Purple Hearts that were from Vietnam, and they just had such a close-knit group of friends. And I realized they don't even live in the same city. So I started, you know, being naturally curious and always, you know, trying to learn about peer support, leadership, whatever. I just started asking questions and I I just said, well, how long did you serve? And one person would say six months before I got blown up. Another person said eight months before I got blown up. After I 
started, you know, asking all these questions, I started to realize, I'm like, well, how do you guys even know each other? Because you live in different cities. You didn't serve at the same time in the same place. Right. And they said, oh, it's the PX. The PX is a place that we get to come. We shop at. Um, there's social activities that are organized through the PX. So we stay in touch that way. And it's, you know, our whole families can get involved in that. And I, it was the light bulb moment for me. And I thought, that's what we're missing. Because as soon as you get your retired ID card and you walk out the door and you hear that click, like you can't go back in, like you can't go back in to even peek at the bathroom that you cussed for being so dirty or falling apart or sewage leaking everywhere for the last 25 years. You're not allowed. What that translates into is this feeling of you're not trusted. Mm -hmm. It's really, it's hard to take for many retirees to know that, wow, I can't even go back in the building that I was trusted to be in because of sieges requirements or any of the other factors. And I thought, I want to change that. And one thing that we don't have in this department are people in their 60s and 70s and 80s walking the halls. But if you go to a college or university, they're the best professors. Mm -hmm. Like you look at the reviews of professors, it's the older ones that make the most impact. And I thought, is there a way to get those retirees that have the great stories and that have a positive outlook on life and are truly leading the life they want to live and truly had a storybook career, really enjoyed their career to be able to give back, whether it's a friendship, a mentorship, story time. And I started thinking we've got hundreds of retirees that are having coffee at Dan's and Fran's and IHOP and Denny's and Jim's every single morning. Why can't we have coffee on Fridays at the Academy, yeah. coffee at the E-Sub on Thursdays. So this peer support, the two classes that we put together, we're actually going to, you know, we've vetted these officers, retirees, and we want them to get access cards, create an agenda uh, to where they don't just wander the halls aimlessly, but we have certain places that we can go and visit and offer assistance and support because we, we do, we have the best stories, you know, and people want to talk about morale, morale, morale. It's like morale is always going to be low at a large bureaucracy. Morale was horrible in 1998 when I became a detective. My sergeant of 30 years said, how much longer you got to work down here, Smith? And I said, well, at least another 20 years. And he started cussing and saying, man, if I had to work another 20 years, I'd kill myself, you know, and it is like morale will always be low in a big bureaucratic organization. But I tell you what, one thing that I can improve each and every day is the people that I'm in contact with, the people that report to me or the people that I report to. I promise I can have a great attitude. I can hopefully offer inspiration. I've got some great stories. I want to be a positive influence in anybody's life that I come across. I still remember, you know, you were talking about how excited you were or others were to hear that I was appointed to be an assistant chief. Like, I will never forget. I ran into so many people that were more excited than I was yeah. to be an assistant chief, like people with tears in their eyes, hugging me saying, oh my gosh, this is such fantastic news for our organization. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, I, I mean, hopefully I can make a difference. And unfortunately, um, with an organization this big and having an entrepreneurial mindset where you want to be able to affect change really quickly, decisions just don't happen quickly. Yeah. Even the chief of police can't make some of the decisions that we all hope and long for. It certainly can be a frustration. And I looked at it as, hey, I'm going to retire. Things are going to be great. I see that light at the end of the tunnel, paycheck for life. I've reached a certain level of, of success. How great. But then you start to realize, have I reached a level of significance that I'm happy with. Yeah. Um, what more can I do? And I just thought, well, I'm not going to be in traffic anymore. I'm not going to be at City Hall. I'm not going to be in these community meetings getting yelled at. All of these things I was running away from with really nothing to run to. Sure. And at some point, you, you just, I just thought, well, you know, I love to go to the gym. I'm healthy. If worst case scenario, I'll just stretch for three hours. Well, I've, I can tell you, I've been retired for three years. I've stretched for three hours. It's not sustainable yeah. to stretch for three hours a day. You need to find something else that will bring you fulfillment and joy. And I'm just lucky that an opportunity's um, come in front of me and I'm able to, to come back and be in the wellness division and, you know, do whatever I can to help. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, as, as we sit here and talk and, and I, I listen to you, I agree. We're always going to have morale kind of struggles right and and i think 
I, I do think there can there can be a, a, a roller coaster, right? Like I, I don't know that any large organization is ever going to be like, oh boy, howdy, everyone's happy, right? Like we've we've fixed this morale issue for everybody. Um, but I do. I, I just had a conversation with a sergeant uh, over the weekend. I get a handful of people that I talk to that are like, hey, you have a really really tough job. You know, you can't make everyone happy, and and it's political, and it's this and that. I was like, yeah, it, it, it is what it is. Like, I, it's a tough job that's probably not for everyone to be the president of the APA. That being said, I put myself in this position. I'm not going to run around complaining about it, crying about it. Like, I'm going to tackle it and and hit it head on and give it give it my best and and try to surround myself with a good team to to accomplish all the things that we that we can accomplish. And I told him, we need more people like you. He's like, oh, I'm just one guy, you know, trying to take care of my shift. I'm like... Exactly. Like, if if I had 300 sergeants that were all committed to being servant leaders, all just trying to take care of their guys, and then you had 85 lieutenants, all just trying to take care of their guys, and 18 commanders, just all trying to take care of their people, and then, you know, six chiefs. Yeah, and I'm not saying that you, you don't hold people accountable. I'm not saying that you don't push people. If and when we get this place to where we have sergeants that have time and energy to mentor corporals and officers. We have lieutenants that have have time and, and, and a structure to mentor our sergeants. And, and and commanders are mentoring lieutenants. And I'll never forget a conversation you and I had when it was, you were probably, I don't know, two, three months on as an assistant chief. And I remember very distinctly where your office was and walking in there and, and saying, hey, man, like, how is this? How are you doing? And you're like, Man, I didn't expect to just show up and be handed a bunch of projects and said, being told like, "Hey, go figure it out. You'll, you'll, you're going to do great." And you're you're right. Like we we get busy, um, things happen, things happen outside of our control. But I think when if we can get to a place where we have just a solid foundation of servant leadership, where it is part of everything that we're doing, not because we're thinking about doing it, just because it's what we do. Mm-hmm. I think we can get to a to a, a great place. I, I remember being a rookie down in Henry Sector on night shift, and Charlie Ortiz was was our commander at the time, and upset Acevedo got bumped from here to there, you know, whatever. I can't remember if this was before or after they made him a, a Grant Rider. He was our commander at the time. Came in, called me by my first name. We we had never met, and I'm like, I have no idea how this man knows who I am, right? Much less knows my first name. Uh, and he's like, Hey, heard you got in a foot pursuit last night. How are you holding up? Are you good? We catch the guy, you know, all these things. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Um, and he's like, what's wrong? I was like, why do you know my name? He's like, well, cause you work for me and I, I read all your reports and you guys are out here doing great work overnight. And yeah, I don't get to see you that much, but you know, I, I came in early cause I heard about the pursuit and want to come talk to you guys. And I was like, okay, there's a guy that doesn't have to come in at five in the morning to check on us, but he did my willingness to do more and work harder for that guy increased. And then fast forward like three, four months, uh, he's out running around doing traffic stops with the DRs, gets in a foot pursuit and skins up his knees in his, you know, shiny shoes and his polyester uniform. You know, talk about stuff spread like wildfire, like that spread across the East Sub like crazy. People would go through walls for that guy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. His willingness to do like you are talking about earlier, like, hey, just show up, just show up. His willingness to do that just move mountains for some people. I, I had a conversation one time with one of our former chiefs of police. I told him, I said, hey, people need to feel like you care. And he started yelling at me and he's like, you, you say that like I don't care. I'm like, man, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you care. It matters if your people believe that you care. Kind of the, the whole perception is reality thing. Like you can care a lot, but if your people don't feel like you care, then all the care, it doesn't matter. And it's, uh, I don't know, I'm excited. I'm excited that you're back. I'm excited that you have servant leadership training going out there because I, I do think it's needed at our police department. I kind of want to piggyback on that. Earlier, you were talking about traits that good leaders have, kind of what Thomas was talking about with Charlie, the authenticity aspect to it that I've always valued a leader who is, they're a good leader, but they're authentic. Don't come acting like you're Jocko Willink because you went out and read Extreme Ownership. Not everyone is that. And I think one of the very valuable things we can do is saying, these are the traits, these are what's out there, but don't act like something that you're not because we're all cops. You're going to see through it the second that person walks in the room, that guy's fake, 
he's just putting on a show for me right now. And so I, I want to hear what you have to say in your opinion on authenticity and how that plays a role. And th there's also the other side of the coin where you can be too authentic. I've had a leader come in and be like, you are telling me way too much right now, sir. Um, that is not what a leader should be doing. So I think um, it, it goes back to one of my favorite quotes is that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And so we have so many people that promote into these leadership positions that may have an amazing amount of homicide experience or special operations experience, but you go into a, a shift full of people you've never met before, they could care less about that. And so for you to go in and start patting stripes or start patting your, your resume or start posting up photos in your office about all of your accomplishments and stuff, they're not going to care about that. They will start caring when you start knowing their name and you start asking about their family, and you start asking, where do you want to be in five years? Because I want to do whatever it takes to get you to where you want to be. I want you to have the most amazing career because I've had an amazing career. Yeah. Not, I'm an expert in this, 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 this. Let's hear about me. A lot of leaders struggle with that when they realize, oh, in a leadership position, it's no longer about the work. It's about the people yeah. that do the work. And some folks that are highly charged, type A, super motivated people have, have really struggle with all of a sudden realizing it's about the people that do the work and not about the work. So the authenticity, I think that you can get that towards humility. You know, I was assigned to Frank Sector at one point as a new sergeant, and I had to raise my hand and say, I was born and raised in North Austin. I patrolled in North Austin. I know North Austin really well. I don't know anything about South of the River. So if I'm showing up late to your calls, trust me, it's because I'm lost and I'm going to do my best to get there. You have to have those one-on-ones. Again, that you can't, you can't Teams meeting <laughs> Your, yeah. your way out of relationships. And so it's through those one-on-ones, it's through those follow-up tech. I remember sending a, a supervisor a, a text message one time saying, hey, my father-in-law is going to have open heart surgery. I'm going to be in and out of the hospital in support of him. But I just want to let you know, I'm not leaving. I'm not going to be on vacation or taking sick or anything like that. Just want you to know that I have this distraction going on. You know how he responded to that information? He responded with a thumb. You know the thumb emoji? Mm -hmm. That's a prime example of somebody that is putting themselves in front of others when they should be putting others in front of themselves. For our... Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, we, we even have a little mic button on your text message where you can actually talk and it'll type. But something along the lines of, thanks for letting me know. I'm here for you. When is the surgery scheduled? Because I'd like to call you or, or ask you how it went. If you need anything from me, I'm available. Those are just simple character traits that we expect and deserve out of our leaders. Letting somebody know that there's a life or death situation, we deserve more than a thumb. Yeah. I can't emphasize that enough, that it it starts with caring. Yeah. Police are a family of introverts. Yes, we know how to take charge. We know how to be decisive. But at the same time, we are introverts. Most cops that I know recharge in some sort of solitary way, either by themselves or in the mountains or fishing or with a very close group of people. I am an introvert. I may not be shy, but I am an introvert because of how I recharge. There's a lot of me and other introverts can learn from others and other stories of great leaders on how to actually care and display those character traits. Only thing I could emphasize is you can't come in there stripe heavy. I'll never forget I was out on a, a SIDS death one time and the mother was hysterical and victim services showed up. I introduced myself as Todd. I walked up to the victim services folks. I was a sergeant in uniform, obviously. I introduced myself as Todd. They each sent me an email that night and said it was so refreshing to have a supervisor come up and introduce himself by his first name. Yeah. And so my follow-up question was, was there any doubt as to what my rank was? Was there any question as to what my name was? And they were like, no, it's stitched right on your uniform, both your rank and your last name. And I thought, that's how you show some of those character traits that you care by just saying what your real name yeah. is. I was just not one of those to ever walk around and introduce myself as Sergeant Smith or Chief Smith. When I was on the SWAT team, I came to be known as Sergeant Todd. And I thought, man, that's, that's cool because it does show the respect of the rank. However, it's a term of endearment by using my first name there. And so I've been on many, you know, calls or meetings lately where people will call me Chief Todd. 
And I think that's really cool. Even though I'll always introduce myself as Todd, it's like I no, no longer hold that rank. Yeah. Somebody else is in that position. I was just temporarily in it. That rank belongs to them. But at the same time, it's like I, I don't feel like I need to go out, show my rank. On my signature line now with the police department, it says Todd Smith, Austin Police, Employee Wellness. Doesn't say retired assistant chief of police with all of my background and all the things that I could put on there just because I want people to know me as Todd and I'm here to serve. I'm here to give with no strings attached. We're lucky to have you back, buddy. Oh, well, thank it's you. It's my great pleasure. You said something earlier that made me think when you were talking about the retirees and, and just the wealth of knowledge, you know, that's been a big kind of topic of conversation as people have, have been leaving all the knowledge that's leaving and, and the experience that's leaving. I tell our folks and, and internally and externally, like we have, we have great people here. The 1,470 ish cops that are still here are fantastic cops. And Yes, they might not have as much experience as the folks that have left, but we will figure it out. And we have we have fantastic people that if we if we plug people in the right spots, we will stay afloat and we can we can push forward to the next iteration of this place. But it is nice to have folks like yourself come come back and continue to help. And not so much like, hey, we need Todd to drag us along, but hey, here's a guy that didn't have to come back, is coming back because he wants to be back and has some some skills and some abilities that we can use as an agency to build our other folks is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Can't say it enough. I'm, I'm so grateful that you're back. I, I think our police department is better off for, for having you back. And I think that, that the place that you've plugged into is a great use of your, of your skills set. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I know that we all leave with great memories from our careers and those great memories will be because of the people. But we're also, you know, um, unfortunately plagued with bad memories. The point I wanna make is that those bad memories are also mostly because of the people. As leaders in our organization, and again, leadership is a choice, it's not a rank, we're all leaders. You guys, especially in this room, have decided to take care of the members and everybody else in this organization. It's incumbent upon us to create those good memories every yeah. day. And there's so many officers that I feel have retired in their prime, and I would love to be able to get them back in some capacity to be able to allow them to still shine and not feel neglected or depressed because their access card doesn't work anymore. Yeah, so I'm always trying to think of new ways to do that also. It's, it's interesting because you're not the first person that's brought that up. You might be the first person that is in a place and has the drive to do something about it in a, in a real meaningful way. And if you're retired and you're listening to this, it sounds like an open invitation to reach out to Todd to figure out how you can how you can plug in somewhere. Absolutely. How, how can everybody go about reaching out to you and what do you got coming out in the future? Quite a few things that I'm, I'm working on. You can certainly reach me at Todd.Smith and then the at AustinTexas.gov. I'm trying to work on a leadership development program for each and every rank. I've decided and have the support of command staff and executive staff that let's start with commanders. You know, anytime I'm presenting a servant leadership class, everybody points up and says, this would be great if, if those in charge would have a class like this. Or I, yeah. I have plenty of reviews that say, great class, one of the best I've ever been to. Every commander should be able to teach this class. And I couldn't agree more. So I'm working on training for commanders because half of of them are brand new. Uh, many of them uh, have not been exposed to many of the prerequisites that I feel should be mandatory in order to be a commander. I mean, with our with our testing, you know, our promotional procedures in place, I mean, you literally could take a few tests and be a commander without ever giving a public presentation, without ever having written a professional paper, without yeah. ever having to make very difficult decisions when lives are at stake or not having those difficult conversations. And so I'm trying to be able to offer modules that all command staff will have to go through because I've been there. Other people that are promoted have been there. You get to the new assignment, you roll into your office, the walls are freshly cleaned with, you know, everything that was hanging is removed, but you open a drawer and what do you, what do you have to, to train yourself up on for this new position? There's going to be a handcuff key in there. There's going to be an old handcuff pouch in there. There's going to be a pamphlet from some training three years ago that's going to be in there. There's not going to be any succession planning. There's not going to be a successful handoff. There's not going to be any mentorship involved. And I would love for each and every rank to have a manual that says this is what you're going to need in order to 
take this test to not only survive, but also excel in this rank. And I would love for anybody of any rank to be able to look to see what it takes to be a commander if they aspire to do that and start that process so they're ready. I think that that would be so helpful. And, and it's something that I've heard for years, right, that we could do better that the military does is, you know, have a, a clear roadmap of, hey, I want to be an assistant chief one day. How, how do I how do I get there? What, what do I what classes do I take? What do I what can I do to get myself there? If we can get there, that's fantastic. The other side of that is the mentorship portion is, I think, vastly needed. And so in our contract negotiations this past go around, we actually kind of introduced a mentorship program into promotions and wanted to start at the high at the highest rank and make sure that it works. And then if it works, then, you know, in subsequent contracts kind of fully fleshed out and figured out how to how to take it everywhere. It's unfortunate that even at the detective rank, depending on where you're assigned, you may have a mentor or not. You may have to just figure things out on your own through trial and error, or you might have another detective take you under their wing. You might have a sergeant that's said, hey, we've implemented these plans to teach new detectives how to be detectives, right? And then same thing at the sergeant rank. If you have good co-sergeants or a good lieutenant, then you're going to be good. Some people just have to figure it out. And then on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, so. mentorship is a is an important topic, and it can go in so many different ways. I, I fully believe that mentorship is also about relationships, and it's about trust. And so you can't just appoint a mentor and tell that person to go mentor a mentee that they've never met before. Right. So you almost have to create a, a database of similar to Facebook marketplace or online dating or something. It's like those that are interested in mentors, being mentors, need to have their bio, their personal history, their professional history, their likes and dislikes, their hobbies, their career, all the places they've been in their career, and then be able to empower potential mentees to go seek out those mentors. Right. It has to come from from the ground up. We can't just have people say, hey, I'm happy to be a mentor because people are not going to jump rank right. in order to go talk to a commander unless it's presented and they're empowered and encouraged. And then we almost make some meetings happen, whether it's a coffee or a luncheon or something like that. So I'm working on um, lots of ideas about that. Because originally I was tasked with, can we create a mentorship program for commanders? And I thought, well, they're all about to retire. And if they are going to have mentors, they need to be assistant chiefs. And so we need to start with executive staff if and work on training them. And that's another component. You, you need to be trained to be a mentor. I can't just say you need to be a mentor. You need to meet monthly. Like there's got to be some sort of agenda and training and goals. Sure. And so it's a, I thought it would be easy to just say, hey, calling, calling all mentors, calling all mentees, like, let's meet. Um, it's, it's much more difficult because there's so much, so much nuance behind the scenes that have to be in place in order for these relationships. And that volunteerism has to exist. Yeah. But those are some things that I'm working on. I feel it's important. I would love for everybody in this department to be able to look at somebody and say, that's my mentor. You know, at the same same time, it'd be really nice. You know, we talked about scale breaks, things in relationships. There's no way I could remember the names of 650 people in my area of responsibility, get to know each and every one of them, uh, you know, on a personal basis. But what I can guarantee is those that report directly to me, I will become very close with them. And it's my goal that they will do the same to their direct reports. And at some point, everybody in this department can look to somebody and say, that's Thomas. He's my leader. He knows my name. He cares about me. I love my job. Like you're really not going to get to a, I love my job until you're able to have some leadership that's willing to reach out and be that that type of caring leader for you. That's a fantastic, fantastic point to kind of wrap on. You have a couple classes coming up. I don't want to get off of here without you plugging those dates and how officers can sign up to go take your class. What what uh, what dates do you have for those? I know there there's two in the second week of September, and I think two on the fourth week of September. 
it's like Tuesday, Wednesday, and I've, I've, I'm offering it from eight to noon on a Tuesday and then from uh, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. for those working evenings and nights to help, help them a little bit on Wednesday. So I'm trying to be as flexible as possible. I love when we get a big crowd in there and we can talk about leadership. We can talk about, you know, creating a movement of people that care. And it doesn't matter about the politics, about contracts, about retirement. We're just going to talk about the people that we care about most and that's what makes this department so special. All right, guys, here's the classes. So September 5th, 8 a.m. to noon, September 6th, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m., September 19th, 8 a.m. to noon, September 20th, 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. All of those can be signed up uh, on ACADIS, and I'll make sure to attach this training announcement uh, and send it out internally to you guys. Awesome. Well, Todd, I can't thank you enough, man, for taking time out of your day to come join us and talk about what what I thought we were going to talk about in just servant leadership. We kind of dove deep into peer support and just a, a few different topics. So I, I'm happy with where the conversation went, I, and I, I greatly appreciate your time. And I can't stress enough, I, I appreciate the fact that you're back here working on behalf of the men and women of, of the police department. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great being with you. As always, guys, if you uh, guys and gals, if you have any ideas for future podcasts or if you need help with anything, feel free to reach out to myself or anyone else here at the APA. Call us, text us, email us. And as always, stay safe.